It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Tuesday, October 6, 2020, and this is For Heaven's Sake, the new podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself, will be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, will explore with us how classic Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. Let's begin. Over the past four months, Israel has moved from being a model of responsibility in times of pandemic to being the model of how not to function. The good news is that we continue to be unique. However, all cynicism aside, it's one thing to be a nation like all other nations and be challenged, fall, and fail in unprecedented times. It is another thing to literally be the worst in the world in almost every pandemic metric. There have been many factors contributing to this radical transformation and failures. Failed leadership, poor tracking and tracing, the well-known Israeli sport of working the system and getting around the rules, to name but a few. But in today's podcast, we will focus on what has become over the last few weeks a principal cause for the increase in infections, percentage of those tested who are positive, critical cases and deaths. This cause is the Haredi community, or part of them, particularly the Ashkenazi sector, seemingly conscious decision to abide by a different set of considerations and regulations than those set by the health ministry and government. During the first wave, the disproportionate percentage of Haredi infections and deaths was attributed to lack of access to digital information, diminished scientific knowledge, large families in small apartments where the majority of infections occurs, etc. After initial anger, Israeli society rallied against the ostracizers and embraced our collective destiny and responsibility. Today, however, after countless cases of quarantine rule violations over the high holidays, increasing now over Sukkot with unique Sukkot celebrations and funerals, etc., coupled with violent clashes with the police, the public sense of anger is growing at the community, which is publicly and consciously separating themselves from the rest of the country and following their own rules and regulations. At the same time, the consequences of their actions are being borne by the medical system, which needs to serve all the citizens and the economy of the total country. 
In today's podcast, we will try to understand why and what to do about it. What does this mean for Israeli society and the future relationship of the country with its Haredi community? And we're going to try to remember this, given our goal, which is to encourage serious and respectful conversation across political, denominational, and religious lines. Yossi, hi. Hi, Daniel. How do you understand this, Yossi? How do you understand the Haredi? Or we're going to do this once so we don't have to continue to do this. It's not all the Haredi, but it's part of the Haredi community. We're talking about the part of the Haredi community which is very, very uh, visible. How do you understand their current response to the pandemic? What's, where are they coming from? I think that the virus is exposing a, a deep paradox in the Haredi world. Uh, on the one hand, this is a community that is the exemplar of the values of social solidarity. When you say, Kol Yisrael Arabim Zelazeh, all of Israel are responsible one for the other, you think really of the Haredi world, how they take care of each other, the poor, the sick, extraordinary levels of, of chesed, of reaching out to, to all parts of their community. The problem is that with some significant exceptions, and then we can dispense with that, I, I'm with you, <laughs> with significant exceptions, that mindset tends to end at the borders of the Haredi world. The Haredi world, when they ask, when their leadership asks themselves, who are we responsible for? They feel responsibility for their community. Do they ask themselves, are we responsible for the Jewish people as a whole? Are we responsible for Israeli society? I think that this virus is giving us a, uh, a very sobering answer. That is sobering indeed. Um, what we're ultimately saying is that we knew that there was this sentiment before the state was created, in the early moments of the state. But part of the narrative that I and many of us have been have been talking about, call it the new Haredi world, is the integration of Haredim into Israeli society. They're in positions of power, most significant positions of power, not ministers of religion of, of my stuff. It used to be, how do I live in Israel and protect myself from Israel so that I can have all the stuff that I need? But that's not the story anymore. The Haredi, no. they, no. they run the economy, they are the minister of interior, minister, their language, the language of their political leadership is very, very Zionist. But there seems to me a significant break between the political leadership of the Haredi community and what seems to be the real power. And that is the, the rabbis, the marketplace. You know, and I don't want to get it. This is not our theme for today. But you could see prior to this, in August, it was both the Haredi community and the Israeli Arab community which accounted together for close to 70% of the infections. There, the political leadership of the Arab community came out clearly, and now you see that there has been a tremendous decrease. The Arab-Israeli community has the largest percentage decrease of infection of anybody else. But in the Haredi community, the, the leadership, are, don't, they don't talk your talk, but it seems that their talk, they've been silent now, and maybe you're right, but that, what does that mean for the future of Israeli society? I think that the much-touted Zionization of the Haredi world uh, has happened, but superficially. The Haredi, certainly the Haredi leadership, and I suspect much of the rank and file, 
never internalized the full implications of the Zionist revolution, which is the centrality of Jewish peoplehood over community. Community is the old model, is the, is the pre-state model of how Jews function. It was basically every community for itself. You worried about your own community. Today, we have a new model, thanks to Jewish sovereignty, thanks as well to globalization, Jewish globalization, which is that, that peoplehood is, is a seminal value. Yet when you look at the behavior of the Haredi community, their default position is to reject peoplehood and to opt for the primacy of community. Now, if you ask what, what are the implications here for the future of Israeli society, I think that we're at a moment, Anil, where, and, and I, I suspect many, many Israelis feel this. Uh, it hasn't yet been articulated. But my strong sense is that this is the moment that we will look back in retrospect as the time when Israeli society realized that we need a new social contract with the Haredi world. It's not working anymore. It's not working because it's come to the point where it has become a physical danger to, to the lives of Israelis. We know it's been a danger to the economy. We know that, that well, there's a debate about how, how much of a security issue it's been with Haredim not serving in the army. But now we have the clearest example of the price that we pay for Haredi separatism. So I think we're, we're at, a, at a historic turning point. Yossi, you know, I always love talking with you and your articulation of distinguishing between the category of community and the category of peoplehood. It, you know, it's one of those distinctions which it's like it's always out there, but the minute you hear it, it just makes order. But what does that mean for Israeli society? Is that we've given up the myth of peoplehood. Now here there's something really strange going on. The Haredi community wants Israeli Jews to feel peoplehood towards them, but doesn't want to feel peoplehood back. And then maybe the politicians speak the peoplehood language. But as you said, the Zionification is, is narrow. What do you think Israeli society is going to do? When, when, I, when I say that we need a new social contract, I think that the, the basis of our relationship with the Haredim is, is unsustainable. That relationship is expressed in, in three ways. First of all, the Haredi community separates itself from the basic responsibilities, the civic responsibilities of Israeli society, a society that is, is under siege. They don't participate for the most part in the defense of the country and uh, have a very low tax base. Not only do they separate themselves, but they insist that the rest of Israeli society subsidize that separation. And finally, the, the ultimate offense here is that the Haredi political parties then turn to the majority of Israelis who are subsidizing their community separatism and say to them, you know, we don't like your lifestyle. We don't think you're living according to the ways that we believe a Jewish state should live. And here's, here are the norms we're going to enforce. So how do we, let, let, let's talk for a second. This is a devastating three-part uh, critique of the reality, truly devastating. And the question is, you know, we could just say, okay, and now we will give this back in return. I, I don't want to give up yet, even though I have no 
argument against your analysis. I think it's, unfortunately, it's too clear and too powerful. But when I look at the future, I would just talk for myself for a moment. Now, at this moment of pandemic, I personally would want to do something very radical. Because we know that all of Israeli society now, all the businesses, the economy is at a, is closed. Basically, in another week, we could open it up. Once you discount Haredim, who are now making up 40% of the infections, basically, within a very short time, Israel could be a, a green country. Maybe what we need to do is is not give up on the Haredim by infantilizing them. And by saying, listen, very simply, I can't control you if you don't want to control yourself. You have to decide to what extent you want to be a community or you want to be a people. In many ways, I have to realize that neither your politicians and certainly not I have influence over you. But I want you as part of my people. And I will continue to take responsibility for you because whether you see it or not, one of the challenges of democracy is I also have to tolerate those who, aren't, who don't tolerate others. I'm responsible for you. I'm not going to give up on the Haredi. But I want to put, in many ways, I'm going to put a wall. You remember how we built walls? We're good at walls or fences, whatever they may be, to protect ourselves. Haredi community, you want to have 50,000 people at a funeral? You want to fashtof 100,000 people into a sukkah? I'm, I'm not, I can't argue with you, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put up a wall. And that wall is a porous wall. The minute you decide you want to be part of this society, the wall comes down. So I'm okay with funding Haredi Yeshivot, and I'm okay with so many things. And I, and I accept that the challenges of peoplehood require this level of give and take. But I think we've infantilized the Haredi community long enough and I think it's time for us to put down our foot or put down a wall and say, money will go back and forth. But you, when you're now infecting, I'll take you to the hospitals, everything. But I'm not going to let you infect the rest of Israeli society. It comes, it's coming down to that moment. See, I, I agree with you that we need to draw a line. The question is where and what kind of line. Uh, to build a wall, literally, figuratively, to literally re-ghettoize the Haredim seems to me one step very, very much too far. This was uh, my attempt at moderation, by the way. <laughs> and, I, and now, what's so interesting, you know? <laughs> Daniel, look, I, I know you for many years, and you have always defended the Haredi community. I know that you have a big soft spot in your heart for, for the Haredi community, as do I, by the way. You know, I, I feel that the Haredi community is the last repository as a collective of the old Israeli ethos of material self-sacrifice. This is the only community that we have left of voluntary poverty. You know, we used to have the kibbutzim, and in the early years, the settlers living in trailers. We're, we're a society that was built on the ethos of voluntary poverty. Today, it's only the Haredim who will have 13 children living in two and a half rooms, spotless rooms, for the sake of Torah study. And, and so I value, I, I cherish what they represent in Israeli society. At the same time, we have to draw a line. And where I personally would draw the line is no more subsidies of Haredi institutions 
that are not willing to accept some minimal responsibility for civic society, don't go to the army. Do alternative service, work in your community, work, work in hospitals, but some sense of participating in the national project. And I say the same thing to Arab Israelis. And by the way, I think going back to what you were saying, comparing unfavorably, comparing the Haredi response to the Arab Israelis, this is also a very interesting moment because here we have a national challenge and we find that our partners are the Arab Israeli community and not our fellow Jews. What does that mean for the future of Israeli identity? What does it mean when we think of Israeli society, who is in and who's not? There are lots of interesting questions here. It's really interesting because for me, subsidies don't bother me. For me, my, my soft spot for the Haredi community doesn't grow out of, similar to yours, identifying some feature of it that I, that I feel is a value, even obviously there are. It's just my very deep commitment to ensure that as a liberal Jew, my pluralism works in both ways, and that I allow people to define for themselves what a meaningful life is about, and recognizing that while I know what it is that I know, I never assume that that which I know is true. And as a result, our society has to allow people to live in their own communities and to develop their own lives according to their ideology, whether I would ever want to be there or not. I want to create in Israel a community of communities. I want this for Orthodox, for secular, for Israeli Arab. I, I believe that in Israeli tribal life, it is only a community of communities that will survive. But despite that, we also need those community of communities to recognize that they, there but for the, for the grace of the, of the people, go I. That I only get to be a community of communities if we also have a feature of recognizing that there's something larger. And so now subsidies in a wealthy country of Israel, I, I'm frightened of people funding on the basis of what I like or don't like. I think though that and especially, by the way, in the Haredi community, which is willing to be impoverished, you're not going to win that battle. You know, I, I think one of the things, and I heard this um, from a number of commentators recently, that in fact, Israeli society has granted autonomy to, uh, to the Haredi, and in a certain sense, also to Israeli Arabs. And that autonomy is undermining the peoplehood language, whether it's Jewish peoplehood or Israeli peoplehood. And I think there's a lot of moves now which are trying both the Israeli Jewish and Israeli Arab, how do we build peoplehood together, removing the military service as a condition. But I think right now is the moment where we have to ask the Haredi community, where are you? And I think part of it is, I don't want to force them to change. I almost want it just to be natural. You decide. You want to be a community of communities? You want to be a community? You live your community. I'll give you money and decide that's where you want to be. I'll give you money, I'll fund your yeshivas. If you're sick, hospitals, those are not my conditions. But you wanna come in, you wanna tell me how I should live my life? You wanna tell me and influence who gets infected or not? Sorry. And then somewhere along the line, the only change that's gonna take place is gonna take place not when inside the Haredi community they say, I don't just wanna be a community in a community of communities. I also take responsibility for some measure of Jewish people. I think we need to act strategically for the Haredim and 
present the community with, with two alternatives. One is integration while preserving your lifestyle. And you know, Israeli society today is not the Israel of the 50s and the 60s. There isn't this, this overweening ideology of conformity. Uh, Israelis today are really live and let live. That's, that's the national ethos. That's how we experience Israel in practice. And Israel today is so much more pluralistic than it was in the supposedly good old days of the 50s and 60s. And that's something that I, I always try to convey to American Jews, that the Israel that so many American Jews longed for, the old Israel of the kibbutz, was a very intolerant Israel. Today, it's much more pluralistic. But it's not as pluralistic. The Haredim are still, they still aggravate to a deep, deep level. Yes, now, you yes. analyzed why. You gave a yes. devastating analysis yes. as to why. So, so the question then is, how do we encourage those parts of the Haredi world that do want to be part of the mainstream while still preserving the essence of their way of life? And look, you and I, I think, have differences of, of, uh, on, on, tactics. on tactics, but very much, I think, see eye to eye in the direction. And that is to implicitly encourage a necessary split within the Haredi world. And I think that split is coming. In some ways, I think it's already there, but it's implicit, it, it hasn't come out yet. And that split is between the, what are called here, the Israeli Haredim, and those who really want no part of Israeli society. We're really being tested today, there is no doubt, because it's not just money and it's not ideology. It really is pikuach nefesh, it's issues of life and death. And here, this is where community of communities or languages of peoplehood really are, are come to bear. Let, let's take a short break. And when we return, Ilana Steinhain will join us. Hi, my name is Jenny Notis-Liss, and I work for the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. With passions running high in the run-up to the U.S. presidential election, we at Hartman want to help you take a step back to ask the big questions that are facing the American Jewish community today as citizens and stakeholders in the American project. How do our Jewish and civic values intersect? What are our obligations as North American Jews? How should our voices be heard? On October 19th, our Hartman at Home programming will kick off with dozens of sessions on the key civic issues facing our communities today including salons, panels, book talks, and deeper learning opportunities. Plus, we'll have 10 takes on the role of a citizen in a democracy, a daily 25-minute session with 10 different Hartman scholars. Join for one session or many as we add a Jewish lens to this critical moment in history. Go to www.shalomhartman.org to find out more. Ilana, how are you today? Doing pretty well. Um, listening to the two of you, I got to say how it feels as an American uh, Jew living in New York. The conversation is parallel, but very different because, you know, you're talking about how do we create a people? And in New York, the conversation is, is it anti-Semitism to point out the groups that are not following within the Jewish community? Or are they creating a desecration of God's name and they're gonna promote anti-Semitism as a response. It's just for our American listeners, this is such a different conversation. It speaks to what's possible 
in our different locales, it's a completely different conversation. So I just want to name that. But it's let's really talk some awesome. Torah. What Jewish sources <laughs> do you think could, um, could, could help us um, Look, I, redeem I'll something you, here? I, I'll tell you, I think that it depends on the genre. If you wanted me to go with a prophetic response, that's going to be different than if you want me to go with a rabbinic response. The start, prophetic, start with the prophetic. Sure. The prophetic response would be like, we know the story. You've got prophets and you've got false prophets. And the prophetic response, I'll, I'll literally give you one verse from Jeremiah that he screams against those he thinks are being false prophets. He says, don't trust the lying words that your false prophets say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Where is this in Jeremiah? This is Jeremiah 7. He's basically looking, he's saying there are people who are arguing, religion is fine, everything is good, our institutions are fine, you don't have to do anything, just trust in the Lord and everything will be good. This is before the destruction, right? This is before the destruction of the first temple. And he says, don't, don't do that. Don't say everything's going to be good. Or like Jeremiah 23, he calls the false prophets shepherds that destroy and scatter the sheep of God's pasture. That kind of prophetic vitriol of like, I'm the real prophet. I know what religion tells us to do. And you're the false prophets and you're perverting religion. It's very tempting. It's very tempting. It has a lot of rhetorical force. But I think as we've seen in actually the books of prophets, it's, it doesn't end well. It doesn't actually get anybody to change. It doesn't change the facts on the ground most of the time. It, it ends up being shouting into the wind. So well, calling that, Haredim false prophets is not going to help that much. Yes, and throwing garbage cans at them is not going to help either. Meaning the vitriol and the, the rhetoric, it, it's not, it's not going to work. And I think it's great that we've stayed away from it. It's not just that there's a, we're not, we're not God's prophets. But I also <laughs> want to name how appealing it is to do that. To say, yeah. I have the truth of what religion is about. And they don't, but it doesn't work. So I, I want to go with a rabbinic approach. And this may surprise you, but I'm going to choose another pre-destruction moment. But the pre-destruction moment is a moment where the Jews had an enemy that was clear and present, the Romans. And they disagreed about how to deal with that clear and present danger. Like the clear and present danger that we have right now in Corona. The Romans are besieging Jerusalem people need to figure out how they're going to eat. So these three amazing wealthy people, magnates, Nakdimon Ben-Gurion, Ben-Kalba Sabua, and Ben-Tzitzit HaKeset, what do they do? They offer their assistance. One of them says, I'll feed everybody with wheat and barley. One of them says, I'll provide the residents with wine and salt and oil. And one of them says, I'll give wood. And it's great. They had enough for 21 years. And here's where I just want to read from the Talmud. Imagine, imagine this. You're besieged by an enemy. There are three people who have come along and given their resources. They have for 21 years enough to sustain everybody. And here comes our text. There were certain zealots among the people of Jerusalem. And while the sages said, let's take advantage of the fact that we have food and make peace with the Romans and end this, the zealots didn't allow them to do this. What the zealots did is they arose and they burned down the storehouses of wheat and barley and led to a famine. I think that's where we are. 
There's a group of people that has said, in order to beat Corona, this is what we need to do. You need to mask, you need to social distance, you need to make sure that you're purelling all these different things, don't have these big gatherings. And then another group of people who have said, we're just gonna burn it all down. It's not an accident, it's ideology. It's not people not listening to their leaders, it's people listening to their leaders and doing what their leaders tell them. This is a moment where Israel as a society has decided these are our storage houses of grain and the Haredim have decided we're gonna burn it down. We have a completely different way of looking at this. And just to note in this moment that this is not a story of insiders and outsiders. It's a story of two factions within the Jewish people that are deeply divided and there are dire consequences to that division. And I wanna look at that moment. The rabbis didn't say, oh, you people are false prophets. That's not what happened. What happens is the following. Abba Sikra was the leader of the zealots, the group that burned down the grain. And he was actually related to the leader of the rabbis who wanted the grain, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai sent a message to the leader of the opposition. And he said, come to me in secret. Abba Sikra came. He didn't throw a bucket at him of water or otherwise. He called him in and he said, you're the leader of the opposition. Tell me what I need to do to avoid certain death. You know your community. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai doesn't even say to him, I want you to turn the tide. I want you to fix this. I want you to influence your people to go in a different direction. He says, show me a method so that I will be able to achieve a small salvation, a Hatzala Porta, just a partial salvation of this moment. He does not think that he's going to suddenly change all the minds of the group. That's the opposition. He does not think, and Abba Sikra even tells him, I can't change all of their minds. That's not going to happen. All he wants is a small salvation. And I would like to put that down as the moment where we are. It's not a moment where you're going to re-educate people in 30 seconds, and you're not going to get the leaders to fundamentally change their outlook. But how do you achieve in this moment a small salvation? That's where I think we are. So where is that source, Ilana? That source is in the Gemara in Gittin, the Babylonian Talmud. And it's pages 56a to 56b. Let's play with that a little bit. I love the idea of a, of a small salvation. Part of me always wants to have big solutions. But very often, big solutions come at horrific prices. And I think as you're arguing, when you want the big solution, you call the other person a false prophet and you try to get rid of them. What in your mind would a small solution be at this reality of danger? We're here it is, we're in the city. The pandemic is at the gates. We have the worst infection rate. One community is ignoring it. What in your mind would be a small salvation? So I actually think, and this is not a punt, I think we have to find out from the leadership of their communities what would be a small salvation. And I'll give you the example from New York. I'll tell you a huge mistake that was made is law enforcement went in and did their thing 
And instead of being perceived as you respect us, you're working with us, it was perceived as you're attacking us. And now the conversation has changed. Local law enforcement is actually talking to the leaders of the Haredi communities here and asking, what can we do? We understand we're not gonna get you to come all the way to our side. What can we actually do? This is not pie in the sky. This is the opposite. This is strategy. What happens though, when you try precisely that strategy, and I believe that the Israeli political system is doing that. I believe the police have done it. In fact, there was a report today that the police even tacitly agreed to allow mass violations uh, among the Haredim as long as it wasn't publicized, which is a scandal in itself. Uh, I think that our situation here today is that the system has indulged the Haredi response. And rather than trying to come up with a small salvation, the Haredi community has essentially pocketed the concession, and, and they're the ones who have made this a prophetic moment. So I think that what you're pointing to is that there's a different question. The question is, how do you achieve a small salvation without that just being an indulgence of bad behavior, right? What happens in this passage, in this Talmudic passage, is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, I need to get out of the city. I need to get out of the siege in order to do what I'm going to do. And I want you to help me. I want you to give me inside information as to how I can do that. Now, what's the equivalent right now? Is it Danielle's idea of maybe there's physical barriers that have to be put up, right? The idea is to actually talk with the opposition, not to say you're going to change fundamentally, but to say, this is what we need. How can we get what we need given what it is that you are doing, right? So Danielle suggested something. He said, maybe we actually create some sort of physical, physical barrier. Is that going to work? I don't know if that's going to work. You have to actually talk to their leadership and see if that's going to work, right? If that's going to mean anything to them. I just think this whole conversation doesn't get started unless there's a paradigm shift in terms of expectations. And the whole idea of we're going to do X to them rather than we're going to actually talk to them and figure out what it is that we can do that's going to work, it's unrealistic and it just creates more antagonism. Right, the videos I'm seeing out of Israel, it's just antagonism. You're right. To use Yossi's language to support what you were saying, Ilana, is that you can't speak about the value of peoplehood and function and attack a, a group for being a community when you're treating them like a community. There has to be a way in which your practices enable them to enter back into the people. You can't win at this moment with the police. You can't. It's not going to go anywhere. The question is, do we start by talking or do we start by a certain action? Yossi felt my wall was too extreme. Great. First, by the way, we always know this is it's not a wall. It's only a fence. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think, I think the important issue is what's the first step? And we already know what doesn't work. And if we really want to be a people, we have to ask ourselves, not just analyze what's broken, but really begin a serious process of asking ourselves, how do we begin to build? And that really is, that's, that's life and death today for us. Thank you, Yossi. Thank you, Ilana. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kelman and edited by Tali Cohen. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman and music is provided by SoCal. 
To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. You want to know what you think about the show? You can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. And let's give all of us and wish all of us a blessing of, of a little better times, of a little more health, a little more safety, a little more well-being and security for all of us. Chag Sameach and thank you.